Hi guys, and welcome to another episode of the Meat Logistics Podcast. We've got a special episode for you today. There is no Austin, but I do have Rebecca Thistlethwaite. She is the director of the Niche Meat Processing Assistance Network through Oregon State University. Um, she has her master's degree in international agricultural development from UC Davis. She's owned her own ranch called the TLC Ranch. She's written two books. They were uh, The Future and The New Livestock Farmer. Now, The New Livestock Farmer has a subtitle of The Business of Raising and Selling Ethical Meat. So I'm really excited to talk about that. She's been in the industry for over 23 years and has worked a bunch of jobs in the agricultural business. So we're really happy to get to pick her brain today. Rebecca, is there anything I missed in that introduction? Uh, no, I think you captured it. Thank you. Okay. Um, aside from doing all that, you're also an advocate for good meat and a healthy, balanced diet. You do some coaching as well? Yeah, I'm also a health coach on the side. So I integrate a little bit of my, you know, good meat propaganda into my health coaching. Uh, a lot of my clients benefit from healthy proteins. So yeah. How many clients do you have? Uh, I usually only work with one client at a time, uh, and we work together for about three months at a time. So it's pretty intensive. That sounds intensive. My wife does that. Um, she worked with, uh, I forget his name, but for about six months to fix some hormonal imbalances. Mm -hmm. Um, so I know everything that goes into that, but it, do you just hate free time? Um, you don't like yeah. to sit around? <laughs> Yeah. And I also have a consulting business on the side where I help startups and meet brands with business planning and feasibility studies and developing supply chains. Yeah. So for your small business um, consultant, what are some types of issues that a small farmer or rancher or medium size might bring to you? Um, I'm not working with the, the teeny tiny um family farms anymore. I'm kind of working for the, to, with those that are kind of moving into the mid-scale uh, supply chain. So, you know, currently I'm working with someone who is uh, building a new mid-scale um, processing plant somewhere in the Northwest. Um, I'm also working with a new regenerative beef supply chain that's coming out of Montana. Uh, so those are a couple projects that, um, that I love working on, on the side, on top of my OSU job. Um, it's fun stuff. You said regenerative farming in that, um, that's something that we've talked about a decent amount on the podcast. And I know it's something that you've talked about a good amount. Um, the health of the soil in the United States is something that I think at least a lot more people are becoming aware of being an issue with monocropping, all of that. Um, I listened to you talk about regenerative farming and how it's not quite as holistic as, as we might think it is based on the name. Um, that was a couple of years ago though. Has there been changes to that? Yeah, I think that was on an NPR podcast that I was on. I think that my main contention is that there was no um, third-party certification of it. And it was just a claim that was being used largely for marketing purposes. <laughs> and I was starting to see it on everything from cereal uh, to leather shoes. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. So you're starting to see it everywhere. Um, and there are new standards coming out. Um, Savory Institute has a set of standards and there's also regenerative organic standards now. Um, but I think, you know, uh, my main concern is that it's really backed by science and, um, you know, the savory standards, for example, actually look at soil data and soil carbon data, um, but again, that's not a, it's not a full like ecological framework. Um, it's just, it's largely looking at carbon flows in the soil. And personally, I, I believe a regenerative label also has to look at biodiversity, you know, like wild, wildlife, bird health, um, water, water quality coming off those farms, um, as well as, you know, how are they treating the animals and then hopefully how they're treating the people as well. So I, sure. I feel like it should be a little bit larger, um, than just soil health, but that's just my personal opinion. <laughs> yep. No, nope. we were talking, uh, last week about how some meat processing companies are starting to learn that they're in competition with 
uh, Amazon, some of the other people for workers. Mm -hmm. uh, they're coming in at about the same rate. So how they're going to not only get, but then keep those workers so there's some experience transfer um, is going to be a major issue. So how farmers, meat processing places are treating their workers is definitely a huge concern to the industry, uh, something yeah. they need to be paying attention to for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we poll our members every year. We have about 1,800 members in our network, um, farmers and meat processors. And labor has always been the number one issue for the last 10 years. We've been polling them. But this year, it was like double the amount of responses than the next most serious challenge for them. Um, so it was, it's, it's more important than ever attracting and retaining skilled labor, um, even unskilled labor, you know, just any, getting anyone in the door and keeping them around and wages have come up dramatically. Um, so I think at the very least, you know, meat processing work is now living wage work. It can support families in most places. So I see that as a positive um, development personally, because I don't think anyone should work 40 hours a week or, or more and uh, not be able to support their families. Sure. Um, one of the things that's going on in the industry right now, at least from, well, it is happening. Um, there are a lot of new plants, both expansion and just new plants from the ground up. Uh, a lot of that is tied up with government funds or grants, which is great. Um, my personal opinion on it was that uh, through COVID, the food supply chain definitely got stress test, stress tested. I think it passed, but man, it felt like it was close there a couple of times. Mm -hmm. um, some decentralization and more of these medium, uh, small to medium sized plants really is going to give us a better ability to withstand future challenges. Is that something you would agree with? Yeah. I mean, I think in, 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 in any industry, when you have more diversified players of different scales, you're going to have a more resilient system. Um, when COVID sent a lot of livestock to be slaughtered into small and mid-scale plants, they were not able to keep up with the numbers of animals. So unfortunately, a lot of, a lot of animals got cold, particularly chickens and pigs, um, because there, there especially is a lack of mid-scale plants in, in this country. There's kind of a bifurcated system where you have lots of little plants, you know, there's around 900 USDA inspected, um, plants in the U S and like 93% of them are small. Um, and then there's a handful of very large ones, right? But we're really missing that mid-scale processor that's more of a regional processor, you know, where they're processing for a few states worth of production. Okay. And so there is, there are um, a number of plants being built right now in the 200 to 500 head of day range um, that are supposed to come online by the end of this year. That's going to increase capacity by about 9,500 head a day. This is uh, beef plants, obviously. Um, so those are mid-scale plants. And then I think with the federal funds, uh, we're going to see quite a number of additional kind of 100 to 500 head a day plants go in for beef and pigs. And, and I do think as long as they have a market, several of these plants don't have any market developed. So I'm a little concerned about that. Um, mm. You don't build a plant and then build a market later. You do it the other way around. So as long as they can stay in business, um, I see that as a positive development, not only for farmers to have more options to get their animals harvested, um, but for consumers to be able to have a wider variety of brands that are not just owned by um, a handful of players. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one of the things that we found uh, very interesting, why we wanted to talk with you is the uh, Niche Meat Processing Assistant Network and Walton's tend to aim at very similar uh, businesses to assist to as customers. Um, I don't know if you would call them customers through that. Would they be considered customers or how would you reference that? 
we we just call them members and it's members. it's, it's okay. a free network yeah we we don't sell anything to them so we don't really call them customers <laughs> yeah and we we do keep an eye on what yeah. you're doing on facebook uh, yeah. we try our absolute best to never put anything on there that's like hey come buy that at walton's <laughs> um we do we see it from time to time but yeah. we're like and eh, this is not what that's about mm-hmm. um we have gone after those customers for a few reasons. One, we're a a family business. Um, We like dealing with other family businesses. That often means that when something needs to be done right away, that's a conversation between a Walton and an owner of that business. Mm -hmm. Um, Instead of if you go after business with one of these huge guys, you know, you're talking to a purchasing agent Mm -hmm. probably who has no real interest or, you know, deep knowledge of the business. Um, one of the things we found through COVID was an increase in those processors business. I mean, it was a huge boom. And what we think happened is the first time somebody tried to go to the grocery store and wasn't able to get the cut they wanted or, you know, something of the quality they wanted. Well, that might've been the first time they ever visited their local processor. Mm -hmm. And initially it was an enormous boom. And we said, if they can keep just like 15% of that new business, it's going to be amazing for them. Mm -hmm. And from our experience, at least, they seem to have done a good enough job to keep on to probably a little bit more than 15%. Um, The businesses that you're working with, how many of them are struggling with that increased capacity? Yeah, so we also asked our processors, you know, what kind of increase in gross um, income they had seen over the last couple of years. And a lot of them were in the like 20% plus category. So yeah, 15%, 20%. They, uh, they're hanging on by a thread. I mean, two years of this with basically the same number of staff or maybe even less staff, you know, the owners work in weekends and work in nights um, they're burning out really quickly. You know, I know, I, I know a couple personally have reached out to me who are ready to transition their business because they just, they need, they need to stop. They're ready for that work-life balance, you know? Uh, so it's kind of an unfortunate conundrum that they have more business than they can handle. Fabulous demand are increasing their prices, paying their workers more, creating really great businesses for their communities, ones that could expand too and provide more jobs. Um, but they simply just can't find the workforce to be able to handle that extra demand. Um, so that's my biggest fear with all these new plant expansions and new plants being built. A lot of them don't do a really good job assessing the local labor market and they just sort of Mm -hmm. have this, uh, field of dreams mentality. If you build it, they will come (laughs) And it just generally doesn't pan out that way. And so I just encourage them to, you know, make, make their workforce like their number one priority, um, especially in the planning phase to really look into that. So building closer to not necessarily cities, but population centers of some kind. Yeah, absolutely. Or areas where there's already a lot of food processing and manufacturing going on and poaching from those other businesses and offering, offering, you know, better benefits, better wages, better work-life balance, daycare, stuff like that, you know? So wages, uh, bonuses definitely obviously help, but work-life balance. Um, I've read something a couple of weeks ago that said that numerous plants were going to a four day work week, giving everyone three day weekends. And I've Personally, I've always thought that's the way it should be. Mm-hmm. If you want, if you want kids to go to school for forty hours a week, if you want people to work for forty hours a week, four days at ten hours and then three days off. Mm-hmm. It's just always made the most sense to me. Uh, my wife and I moved down to Wichita, Kansas, from New York, and our thought process was: well, it, when we got down here, things slowed mm-hmm. way down. We're like, okay, <laughs> doesn't run at the same speed as what we're used to, but we're seven, eight years in now. And we've found that we've, again, destroyed our work-life balance. Mm-hmm. It's just all work all the time. Um, but I mean, she and I are lucky enough to love what we do. Mm-hmm. So that definitely does make a difference. Um, outside of those things, uh, culture, do you, do you work with them on building a culture within uh, the company to keep people motivated, to keep 
morale high? Yeah, um, we're we're actually launching a meat processor academy short course in about a month, and one of the modules is all about human resources. So attracting and retaining labor, professional development, creating a culture of not only food safety and excellence, but of care for the people in in your plant um, and creating more of a team environment. So we're bringing in a couple expert speakers to talk about that. You know, I have not managed to plant. I really don't know what it's like. All I can say is that um, the plants that I know that treat their people like their family um, and, you know, give them sick leave and are like, oh, yeah, you're sick, your child's sick, whatever, go take care of that. Um, you know, just treat them, treat them like people rather than cogs in a, in an assembly line. Um, they just seem to retain staff um, and have lower turnover. So sort of anecdotal, but it also makes sense. Oh, it definitely <laughs> makes sense. Um, the, I've been lucky enough that I, my only real foray into the true corporate world was bank of America. And that lasted eight months. And I was like, mm, I, I'm not doing that <laughs> yeah. again. Um, it makes a huge difference uh, when you know you're cared about beyond just what you can produce. It, it does make a big difference for sure. Uh, that school or the classes you were talking mm -hmm. about, is that the Western Meat School? No, we actually, so the Western Meat School we launched two years ago, and that was for farmers and ranchers to learn how to market meat. So kind of all the logistics okay. of finishing the animal to dealing with your processor, packaging, labeling, pricing, and different market channels. Um, the Meat Processor Academy is brand new. Um, we were just funded by USDA Ag Marketing Services to put this together. But it's really designed to improve the business and financial practices of small plants who want to grow. So we're really targeted on the growing plant between 25 and 150 employees. Um, it's part of a project called Meat of the Middle. So it's about building capacity in that mid-scale, um, or at least helping small processors grow into more mid-scale regional processors. So um, it's all, all business topics taught by either you know really competent plant operators um, or meat scientists and extension agents. So um, I'm really excited to launch it on March 22nd. It's all virtual. People can attend from anywhere. In fact, we have folks in other countries who are signed up. And it's reasonably priced, just $150 for up to two employees per business. And okay. it's designed for plant managers, owners, operators, because we're going to dive into things like KPIs and budgets and stuff like that. Awesome. I know some of our commercial customers do listen to this. So please send me a link. Uh, we post these. Obviously, we do it on YouTube and wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, but we also have a, a website called Meetgistics. Um, it's developed into a pretty interesting little community of home and commercial meat processors. Uh, so we do a post with the podcast. I'll, I will absolutely make sure that we post a link to that because it sounds like it would be a great resource. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about, uh, especially with the the subtitle of the new livestock farmer, uh, how does a smaller processor or oh no, sorry, uh, the ethical raising ethical raising and selling ethical yeah. meat. Sorry about that. Uh, we've talked a good amount, Austin and I, about veal. Mm. I've got a uh, an image in my mind that to be perfectly frank, is probably put there by an old South Park episode. <laughs> so it's probably not very reliable, but that is where it comes from. Um, is that, so I, I don't have a problem with veal in the form that, you know, it, it's a very young cow. I have a problem with the restriction of its movement mm -hmm. uh, to make the meat more tender. Is that a real thing? Or is that just kind of a somewhat of a either overblown or urban legend? No, it is a real thing. Um, you know, they're usually dairy calves, um, dairy bull calves that are put in small little huts and they're tied to the hut so they can't leave and they don't move around much and they're just fed um, in that little hut. 
And so their muscles are incredibly tender because they're just never worked. Right. Um, but it's been banned in several States and a a lot of restaurants now kind of poo poo it and Mm -hmm. just won't put it on their menu. And there was such a backlash, I think against conventional meal veal that the industry kind of disappeared for a while, but there has been a little bit of a resurgence of veal in the form of what's called rosé veal, which is what I talk about in the book. And those are calves that are um, either they're fed on their moms um, or they're still fed real milk rather than milk replacement. And they're allowed to be outdoors um, in small pastures or small paddocks. So they're not getting like excessive movement running around hundreds of acres, but they get a little bit of movement. They get to be outside. They get to nibble on a little grass if they feel like it. Um, they're still mostly fed milk, but the meat is not as, is, um, pale. It's more pink. So it's kind of a, it's to me, I really enjoy it. It's like, it's like a halfway tenderness spot between conventional veal and, you know, a full, um, full grown steer. Um, so it's still quite tender and flavorful. And I know some dairy farmers who are making a nice little side enterprise doing rosé veal. So I feel like, you know, it can really help actually resurrect our dairy industry because dairy is really struggling in the U.S., especially the, the family scale dairy. I think if they created rosé rose veal businesses, that could be a way for them to stay in business. Yeah. Yeah, being from upstate New York, I mean, there were smaller dairies mm-hmm. all over the place. The last time I was back was five years ago or so. They all seem to be gone. Yeah, I know. I, it's really sad. It, but that seems to be what's happening with a lot of things. Um, I think the recent uptick in caring uh, from the consumer, caring about where the food comes from, knowing what was in it, they're looking for a higher quality um I think that has a chance to turn some of that around, mm-hmm. uh, a more artisanal uh, way of doing that. Um, but I mean, it, it definitely is going to take hard work. Like you said, people are burning out because it takes a lot. Yeah. And that that's the focus of our Western meat school is to help producers to create a differentiated product. You're not going to be able to compete with the likes of JBS and Cargill and um, Greeley, Colorado style feedlots and stuff, nor would they want to because the price points are ridiculous. So they have to create something that's differentiated. And I'm not telling in our courses, I'm not telling people what they need to do, what production practices are best. That's really up to them to decide that and match that with the right market. Um, but that's the only way they're going to stay in business. You're not going to come at, at a small scale or even a mid scale. You're not going to compete yeah. with the likes of vertically integrated, um, large, large packing firms. So why would you want to, and same with in the dairy world. So there are ways to do it, but you have to be very marketing savvy. So good. It's good that somebody is out there giving them that knowledge. Um, obviously, we like it because it's our mm-hmm. customer, but I also like it because I like to eat high quality mm-hmm. meat. And it seems like that's what the small, medium size is more aimed at. They've learned that lesson that they're not going to win on a dollar to dollar. So promote their quality. Yep. I think that's a really good thing. Um, I did hear that you uh, spent some time down in Belize. Oh yeah, that was that was um, the turning point actually for me as an undergrad um, to shift into. Oh, I was in college while yeah, you were down to there. shift into agriculture. I, um, I was focused on conservation. I had a belief that you had to exclude people from nature, and that was the only way to protect nature. And then I saw in Belize that people could live in nature, farm, gather timber, gather all their resources, and and the wildlife and nature was still flourishing. Um, so that shifted my focus. And then that's what I went and studied in grad school is I, I um, studied traditional agriculture in Guatemala and um, just became really enamored with um, ecologically based farming systems. Yeah. Uh, first of all, absolutely gorgeous mm-hmm. country. 
my wife and I got down there just before all of the COVID mm. stuff happened. Um, and I, where we stayed was gorgeous. We did a, a VRBO, mm -hmm. whatever, just a little place. Um, food was mm -hmm. amazing. But my favorite part of it was we went to do a, a river tube mm -hmm. float thing through the yeah. caves. Yeah. And that was incredible. It was eerie. It was amazing. Yeah. We learned all sorts of things about the, uh, the culture. Mm -hmm. Um, but to me, the coolest thing was the walk from where we parked our car, where we parked the van up to where you start the mm -hmm. float, you go with mm -hmm. a guide and our guide happened to be a, uh, some sort of, uh, ecological professor. Mm -hmm. Um, so he literally stopped and told like us what every plant was. He even said, up around this corner, we're going to come to this little place. And he's like, we'll see this tiny little uh, mm -hmm. lizard. It's like, it'll be this big and it's bright colored. Uh, and luckily, I think he knew how much I was mm -hmm. enjoying it. So he just kept giving us more and more and more. But yeah, absolutely fell in love with Belize. We 100% plan on going back. Uh, great, beautiful mm -hmm. people, beautiful yeah. land. So yeah, that's awesome. It. That's awesome. Uh, so you went down to Guatemala as well? Yeah, I spent six months in Guatemala hiking around the Mayan highlands. Um, as my graduate research, I was um, I was cataloging all of the species of plants that were growing in their home gardens. So I interviewed and surveyed 160 households and their home gardens and surveyed every single plant in their gardens. And if I couldn't identify it, I took samples back to the University of Guatemala and worked with a botanist there to figure out what species they were. Um, and then I produced my thesis. I wrote it in Spanish and I gave a presentation while I was down there at the end um, and then translated it into English later um, to get my master's degree. Um, but yeah, it was, it was really interesting. It's kind of wonky, but the premise of my research was that people with more diverse gardens had better food security. So they had better, um, they had more, more well-rounded diet, better nutrient access to nutrients, um, had less, um, nutritional diseases in their children. Cause I actually worked with a couple of doctors too, that kind of surveyed the health aspects of the families and families that switched to cash cropping like coffee or bananas and got rid of all that biodiversity in their garden had lower food security, worse nutritional outcomes, more diseases in their children. Um, so it went counter to everything I learned in grad school about international development, which was all about helping farmers to develop cash crops to export to the U.S. or Europe as a way to lift them up out of poverty. I never believed that to be true. And my research along with a lot of other people's research just continues to show that that doesn't work. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> Well, at least you were honest about it. I mean, you came out with your findings yeah. like, Hey, I went looking for a, I found a was not yeah. correct. So, I mean, that's exactly what you're supposed to do. So good job on okay. that. That's why I read, um, uh, it was something you wrote on poultry mm -hmm. Um, that's why it was in Spanish mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Cause there were two versions of it and I clicked on the Spanish one first. I'm like, Oh no, I'm not going to be able to do yeah, this. I, like two years <laughs> of high school Spanish is not going to get me through. Yeah. I am creating more resources in Spanish for our website, uh, because we're okay. more, more and more meat processors and their employees obviously are Spanish speaking. And so that's been an effort of mine. Yeah. That's great. One of the things in that, when I finally got to the one I could read, um, was that cleaning and sanitizing are not the same thing. That's something we've tried to drill into our customers, our viewers, whatever you want to call them for uh, a long time. Is that something that you run into problems? Like do, do small, medium commercial processors not understand that as well as they should, or do not all of them? Well, I, th I think any inspected processor is going to understand that because they've had to write a HACCP plan and SSOPs and, and record keeping and all of that. But I work with a lot of custom exempt processors who are thinking of going under inspection. A lot of them have a lot of fears because they don't know what they don't know. 
Um, but a lot of them don't have HACCP training. I've never written one before. Um, have a strong cleaning program, but maybe not a sanitation program that would be up to snuff for a HACCP plan. Um, so, and they don't really have a culture of food safety quite like an inspected facility because they don't have someone standing over them. I'm not saying they're dirty, um, but, but they just right. have typically a different culture. Like I've been doing this for 80 years and this, this works, right? Um, and so we, we do a lot of webinars. We have web pages. Um, we offer consulting with processors who want to get up to snuff, come under inspection and kind of change their food safety culture. Um, it's sometimes a big lift. I'm sure you've experienced that <laughs> yourself. <laughs> oh yes, for sure. Um, when I worked in customer service, I started here working as a customer service agent. Um, I talked to numerous people as they were writing their HACCP plan and you could just hear them age <laughs> as they went on. It's like, oh no, this sounds like such a hard thing. But in the end, it really is very, very important to have uh, making sure your employees, your customers, everybody is is safe. Uh, I do a lot of cooking here. I make a lot of sausage, snack sticks, jerky, things like that. Uh, and we do it for you know YouTube videos mm -hmm. like how-tos, but in the end, we don't throw Mm -hmm. anything away. So everything mm -hmm. gets eaten. And I live in constant fear of giving somebody <laughs> food poisoning. But my, the way I look at it, at least, is that fear keeps me at least a little bit sharp because every step of the way I'm thinking, okay, mm -hmm. I did this, right? Yeah. Okay. I put mm -hmm. the cure in. Yep. Yep. And just it's little checklists that I run through my head mm -hmm. constantly. There's not enough room up there for anything <laughs> new though. So it's just can't push anything in or out anymore. Um, so both of your books are available on Amazon. Is that the best place to get them or is there somebody or a better place? Um, I prefer people buy from the publisher and they often have sales like almost all the time. Um, and it's just chelseagreenpublishing.com. They publish a ton okay. of farming and livestock books, homesteading, um, so there's a lot of great resources, cookbooks, everything. Um, and the money goes either, you know, more to me and more to my publisher. Um, Amazon obviously does not do that, but I don't really care. Um, just as long as they check them out. And, um, I have been told the the new livestock farmer book that I wrote, uh, is the only one out there that really explains how to build a direct market meat business from the ground up. Okay. Um, and in writing that book, uh, we interviewed over a hundred farmers and ranchers. I had experts review each chapter, subject matter experts review each chapter. Cause I still have my like university background and way of thinking, you know, so I have to have everything well-referenced. This is not just from my head. Um, so I still think it's probably the best resource out there. It's six years old and I don't really think anything's changed except the the only market channel that has really blown up in the last couple of years that I didn't talk about was e-commerce, you know, and being able to ship frozen meat in insulated boxes um, has now become incredibly popular. Um, we put on a webinar, nichemeatprocessing.org, um, that goes all about how to do e-commerce. And we're always creating new resources um, on that website. It's all free. So... Mm -hmm. It's all free. So uh, at the end of this, we'll have to get a, a list of links you want yeah. me to put in this because people are going to want all of that, Definitely. I'm sure. Uh, as you were working on this, did your, obviously health is something that's really important to you. It is really important to me. COVID mm -hmm. has been rough. There's been about an extra 25 <laughs> pounds that somehow found its way onto my frame during COVID. Um but did it change your eating habits? The more you researched for these books, the more you got into the industry. Do you eat more meat, less meat? Well, I used to I used to be a meat producer for seven years with my former partner. I ate an incredible amount of meat when my freezers were full of it. Right um, now that I'm not farming anymore, don't have animals, um, I don't eat as much meat, um, mainly because it's expensive and procuring good stuff. I'm pretty picky now that I know how animals are raised. Mm. Um, 
But, you know, about four years ago, I kind of moved towards a more keto paleo diet, just really cut out carbs and grains. Um, I basically save my carbs for beer. That's about it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I eat mainly just meat and vegetables and and nuts um, and definitely dairy. I still do cheese um, because my body can tolerate it fine. Can't yeah, live without cheese. Yeah, it's my number one food group, honestly. <laughs> it really is. Um, but I lost about 10 pounds, dropped like four pant sizes, and I've been able to keep it off. Um, I also do intermittent fasting, so I only eat two meals a day. Yeah. That makes a huge difference. Um, and yeah, it's just it's been easy to maintain where I'm at and have tons of energy. And I did not put on the COVID-15 or the COVID-19. Uh, <laughs> 25. <laughs> primarily because I, um, I just started, I started walking more. Like I take a ton of phone calls for work and I used to just sit in my office and take the phone calls. But now anytime anyone calls me, I put on my shoes and I go outside for the call. And so I can get four or five miles of walking in every day, just taking phone calls from processors. I'm like, Kill two birds with one stone. Sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah. That's actually a very good idea. I I have two very large dogs, so we go for walks, like an hour walk every day at lunch. Otherwise, my house is destroyed because <laughs> they have too much energy. Um, but walking around while on phone calls, I might look psycho <laughs> here, but it might be worth it. But yeah, no, um, intermittent fasting is... Absolutely mm-hmm. unbelievable. Uh, that's what got me down to my lowest weight mm-hmm. and best shape. Um, and then, you know, these last two years <laughs> have been hard on everybody. I mean, <laughs> let's just be honest. Um, and I wasn't able to keep that laser focus during all of it. But yeah, yeah what can you do? Good. I'll get back there. Uh, is there a, a favorite, like what's your favorite type of protein? Do you like beef, bison? Um, I think if I could afford it and had more access to it, I'd probably just eat lamb all day. I love lamb. Yeah. Mm. Love it. Um, but you know, it's a good 14 to $20 a pound, even for the cheapest cuts. Um, I eat, I have a couple kids and I'm a single mom. So I go, I go pretty simple. Um, I eat a, a lot of ground beef, um, Steaks typically, I, I like top sirloin because it's more flavorful okay. and it's a little cheaper than ribeyes. Um, I love flat irons. Um, oh, yeah, they're flat so irons good. They're so good. Awesome. So flavorful. Um, I also eat a lot of sausage because of the ease. And I just found a good supplier of grass fed beef hot dogs that I love. They're actually really thick. Um, Painted Hills natural beef in Oregon. And what else? Pork. I do um, mostly pork chops. And every once in a while in the winter, I'll do like a pork shoulder roast in the slow cooker. Because I work from home, I can start something in the morning and pull it out in the evening. Yeah. Yeah. I'm lucky enough if I want to, we've got a a pretty nice nice studio kitchen here. So if I want to cook something during the day, I mean, my Office is right there. Just come in here, start it, and then walk away. We do a lot mm. of sous vide stuff. Well, not a lot, but a good amount when it's something long because it's just like I don't have to think about that again until I'm done with it. So, um, you said the good hot dog was where in Oregon? Painted. Oh, it's called Painted Hills Natural Beef. Okay. And they're an Oregon brand of family farmers. And uh, yeah, they, I don't know who their co packer is, but they make a, a mean hot dog. When I used to be a farmer and I could open the freezer and peck out any cut from the animal and we were also merchandising and selling the meat, I would make it make a point like every Sunday to try a new recipe Mm. like um, lamb shanks or, you know, the Boston butt roast or um, I even tried like a a whole loin roast where I, where I, I think I call it butterflying it where you open it all up and then you stuff it and you roll it back up and tie it up. I did much more exciting and interesting recipes because then I would tell my customers like, Hey, I cooked this and this is the recipe and, and it worked out. 
Um, but now I'm pretty boring and kind of stick to the tried and true. <laughs> yeah. One of the best ways uh, to do advertising nowadays is with information. Like mm-hmm. Give your customers information on how to. Um, I mean, YouTube videos are free. Oh, I mean, there's mm-hmm. some cost in setup, but not much. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you teach them how to do things, they'll see you as an authority and keep coming back to you for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to, we'd talk with the Meatistics users and they all thought I was not a freak, but weird feeding. I'd eat two steaks a week, like no matter what. I haven't had a steak in I think six weeks just because the price is out of control for the first time ever in my life. I put a steak back on the shelf. I was like, I cannot, I can't pay that. That's yeah. crazy. But yeah. Yeah. I, I have been eating more like sausage and grind lately for sure. Yep. Yeah. It makes it a little bit uh, more palatable. Um, it's still, you know, even the cost of sausage is up, but it's nowhere near, you know, as bad. Mm-hmm. So uh, what do you, you call it? Bioregional, you have a term for eating. What is it? Oh yeah, yeah. Bioregional. I didn't term. I didn't coin it, but you know, it's really eating what is biologically available in your area, what grows well. And so, you know, I'm in the Pacific Northwest, but I'm on the Columbia River. So salmon and steelhead is part of my bioregional diet. Um, we can get it. Uh, they, it can be farm or ra- it can be harvested commercially by native tribes along the river. So I try to buy fish from them. Okay. Uh, we we have quite a bit of lamb and sheep production out here. Of course, cattle as well. Not a lot of pigs are being raised. It's not really pig country because we don't grow grain out here mm. nor poultry. Mm. So you know, I I I eat more ruminants than I do you know, the monogastrics and poultry and more fish. Then if I lived on the coast, I'd probably eat more shellfish um, as well. And if I lived maybe in Iowa, I'd probably eat a lot more poultry and pigs, you know. <laughs> so, it's everywhere there. Yeah. Um, so I think it, it's just like eating seasonally. You know, we think we don't think it's weird to eat fruits and vegetables seasonally. We wouldn't expect to you know, eat a strawberry in January unless we want it shipped from um, far, far away. So I don't see why we can't think of meat in the same way. Um, What is most ecologically appropriate for your area um, and is actually in season. So, and is good for your land. I mean, ruminants are great for for the land that we have out here in the West. Um, and, and And they're all over and it keeps our, our beautiful open spaces open. So you said you don't think people, or you think people think it would be weird to eat strawberries off season. I think we've trained people to just think strawberries are all the time because every time I go to the grocery store, they're always there. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. I think we are increasingly thinking that fruits and vegetables are year round. Um, but I do think like discerning customers who know when something's in this peak of ripeness, who can tell the flavor differences, they're like, oh yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't buy strawberries in January. I'll just wait until May when they're coming from Oregon producers or wherever you live. Um, Same with citrus, you know, that like California citrus is like January through March, but it's not the rest of the year. Apples, if you're buying apples in June, those have been in cold storage since sure. November the year, the year before, and they're pretty gross. <laughs> so, <laughs> but if we could eat meat more seasonally as well, um, that would also mean that farmers wouldn't have to, you know, uh, try to produce year round, which is really hard in a lot of locations, requires expensive infrastructure, especially in snowy places, you know. Mm. Um, and then we could produce animals that that are really fit for our location rather than trying to be all things to all people or grow, grow everything for everyone or Right. Trying to shoehorn pigs up into your area. That's not where they're best for. So, okay. I get that. What percentage do you think are those discerning customers though? Cause I don't think it's much. No, but it's, those are the, you know, if you're, if you're producing a product for a certain market, which is what you should be doing, you're not producing it for everybody, it's probably going to be those same discerning customers who are willing to pay pay more for a quality product. That's a really good point. 
right? So I think, I think they go together. Um, okay. you're not selling to a Walmart shopper who wants bargain basement prices or you are not going to last in business for very long. <laughs> so. No, definitely not. And that's just, something just hit me. You have your master's degree. I should be calling you doctor. No, that's, that's just Is master. That... <laughs> no. Oh, okay. Okay. No. It's, I don't have a PhD. <laughs> PhD. All right. Thank you. Okay. But it just hit me. I'm like, wait, she's really smart. That's right. No. She has a master's degree. Okay. <laughs> Uh, as you can t tell, we don't talk to a lot of uh, master's degrees or PhDs on this podcast. It's mostly, hey, do you know how to make sausage? Uh, what role do you think hunting plays in that bioregional eating? Oh, yeah, that, that's a good point. And I, I forgot to mention that. I, I absolutely think wild harvesting of the game and, and the fish that live in your area to a sustainable level is part of that bioregional eating. Absolutely. Um, and then you're, you know, you're, you're physically actually consuming the, the plants and the soil and the nutrients of your region because that's what those animals ate. So it's just, you're like, like what if you, if you had allergies, for example, to wild trees that lived in your area or bushes, and then you ate venison from animals that ate those, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm just making this up. I don't know sure. if there's yeah, any yeah, yeah, scientific yeah. basis for this, but maybe, you know, maybe it could help you um, get over those allergies or something. I know it works with bee pollen and honey, yep. but, um, but yeah, that's, that's an excellent way to just really tie yourself to a place and to the ecology of that place. And it's so nutrient dense. I mean, you can't, there's nothing more nutrient dense than wild game. Totally agree. Um, and with ever, as bad as things could possibly go, if you know how to hunt and go harvest your own game. Um, I remember stories of my grandfather uh, back in the, right after the Great Depression, they would make the most out of every single bit of wild game they harvested. It's mm -hmm. an important skill. Um, the last two years, we've sold more hunting licenses than mm any time in previous. So it is, it's something people are coming back to. Um, I feel like the hunting industry has started to do a better job marketing itself as not, you know, Bob who likes to shoot a deer from his truck, <laughs> but as like a, an honorable pursuit, like mm -hmm. fair, fair chase is very important. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, you can give guys like Adam Greentree, um, they get a lot of that credit for doing that stuff. So mm -hmm. yeah. Are, I think, I think it's really important. I'm not a hunter myself because I have really poor eyesight and I should okay. not be holding a firearm. Um, it's but, very responsible of you to know that though. That's good. <laughs> but I have helped butcher, you know, plenty of game and domestic animals. So that that's where I can help out. <laughs> sure. Yep. They, hey, it's not for everybody. So <laughs> you do whatever you, you can do. Keep the well-seeing awesome. people out there. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca, is there anything else you want to talk about today? Um, well, I just wanted to talk a little bit about my day job at OSU. 100%. So the Niche Meat Processor Assistance Network is an extension program um, that's housed at Oregon State, started about 14 years ago. But we serve a national audience of niche meat producers and processors. So when I say niche, it's basically anyone doing something that's um, that's different and differentiated, you know. So mostly folks that are processing whole animals and not buying in box meat, right? Um, and our kind of bread and butter clientele that we work with are the uh, fee for service processors that do slaughter through cut and wrap. Um, and so we help with, we produce content every year based on what they want to learn about. So we survey them every year in January, say, what do you want to learn about this year? Then we produce content. So we, we have webinars, we have YouTube videos, we write case studies, um, reports, um, some research. We do one-on-one -on -one technical assistance. People can book office hours with us, half an hour slots for free. Um, and all of our services are free with exception of if you want to hire us to do more in-depth consulting on like a business plan, um, then we can do those things um, for hire as well. But 
an exciting thing is we are uh, about to launch a big project with USCA Ag Marketing Services as part of Biden's billion dollars um, that he's going to inject into diversifying our meat processing infrastructure. Mm -hmm. There's going to be a lot of grants coming out. Some have already come out and there's going to be a bunch more over the next few years. And so we're being contracted to provide technical assistance to processors who want to apply for those grants. So you'll see on our website in the next couple of weeks, you can book with 10 different consultants who can walk you through applying through the, for those grants and how to implement um, those grants should you receive them. So we'll have experts in facilities and operations and human resources and food safety and religious slaughter um, and a f- business planning and a few other key topics um, that people will be able to access for free. So that's, and this is all through Oregon State University? Yep. Yep. Wow. But the consultants I'm working with are all over the country. And they're just experts in their field that are working with us on this project. So, um, yeah, it's exciting times right now. We're growing from a one-person organization to about 10 in the next <laughs> month. <laughs> so. <laughs> Good. Uh, good. Uh, growing is a good thing, but I, I mean, they call it growing pains for a reason. Yes. It, it can hurt. I know. I will go from just being my own boss and having no staff to now being managing a, a bunch of staff and being slightly more accountable. So, uh, But the good thing is, I mean, you're, you're going to be dealing with some very highly qualified people there. Yeah. That does tend to, if you have good people, mm-hmm. it makes everything so much easier. Yeah. Um, I'm the media manager here. I don't worry about any of what my people are doing because mm-hmm. I know they're doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. If they have a problem, they come to me, that, that's it. Mm-hmm. I don't have to sit over their shoulder and watch what they're doing. Yeah. So it makes a huge difference. You're going to do great on that. So your base in Oregon State, these people will be associated with Oregon State or the niche well, I mean, the niche meat, uh, that is part of Oregon state. Yeah. So, yeah. They'll be, okay. they'll be contractors hmm. for at Oregon state, but they'll be housed in different States and people will be able to con processors will be able to either book a call with them or email them for support. And so that will be launching here in March and as well that is that meat processor Academy. So I'll send you all the links for that stuff. <laughs> We've got a lot going on. You <laughs> it's do. Exciting. You do. I like to complain about how busy we are, but man, I, I was joking earlier when I said you hate free time, but you really might hate free time. I'm actually going skiing right after I get off this call. So I'm, oh, excellent. I'm, I'm I, clocking I out early today. <laughs> that is awesome. I, one of the things I miss about living in New York is access to mountains. Yep. In Kansas, the highest mountain is the overpass for the highway. It is a sad thing. I love skiing. Don't want to hold you anymore. All right. Um, thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah. Uh, really, really do appreciate it. Um, send me all of those. We will go ahead. And uh, I know there are a good amount of medium to small commercial processors who listen to this. Mm-hmm. So if you are, please get in touch with Rebecca. Mm-hmm. Uh, go to meetjustics.com. Look for the podcast. We'll have all the links you'll need for everything on that post. Awesome. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thanks for checking out the Meatjustics podcast. To shop everything but the meat, head on over to waltonsinc.com. And to get your meat processing questions answered by experts and enthusiasts alike, head on over to our online community at meatjustics.com. Waltons, everything but the meat.